You're listening to a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with film director Jolien Hoff and Muzaffar Ali. They both joined me in the studio to talk about their documentary, The Staging Post. It's a beautiful and inspiring story of the refugee community in Chisarua in Indonesia awaiting their applications to be processed and the amazing work that they did to set up the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre. You are listening to 3RRRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as promised, I have with me two amazing, inspirational guests. And uh, they are Jolien Hoff, who's a filmmaker, and uh, also Muzaffar Ali, who uh, is a refugee. He's a photographer. He's a human rights activist. So thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Amy. Uh, as refugee, former refugee, uh, and on Refugee uh, Week and Refugee Day, experiencing uh, my refugee experience, that's uh, that's really a pleasure to be here. It is really great to have you because your story and the story that you share is a really special and unique one, um, and it's something that I'm I'm sure will be really interesting to everyone listening today. Um, first of all, you both met um, in Indonesia. I want to, I guess, tease out your personal stories that brought you to Indonesia in the first place. So go a bit chronologically and then move into what the film um, really captures in Indonesia in Chisarua. So I might start with you, um, Muzaffar, and your background and experience. You're an Afghan Hazara. And so, first of all, could you share with us the reason why you had to leave Afghanistan and also what were you doing in Afghanistan before you left? I was very young when my father had to flee uh, Afghanistan um, after a civil war uh, broke up. Uh, so I grew up in Pakistan, uh, where I got my basic education. But I returned uh, in late 2004 um, because I knew uh, a little bit English. Then I got a job at the UN. So I'm really lucky to get that prestigious job to work for the UN, where I got a unique opportunity to travel to those remote um, districts, remote areas in Afghanistan and see beautiful people and beautiful places where very few people has, uh, have got chance to go there. So there, uh, I was really happy that I'm making a difference uh, post 9-11 when Taliban was defeated, where my people were persecuted, uh, Hazara people. In mazar sharif in Bamiyan, in other areas, uh, we were discriminated before, but I was really excited to be a part of this change. So I started taking photos. My intention was to share these photos uh, for those people who grew, grew up uh, outside Afghanistan, they never saw their country, their motherland before. So I shared, started sharing them on uh, social media. So it soon got uh, a lot of attention from um, Afghan people who never uh, saw Afghanistan or who uh, uh, the uh, foreigner, uh, foreigners, they uh, always they saw Afghanistan's uh, violent picture uh, during the war, but uh, it, it was a totally different. So uh, that was a new passion I, I got uh, through this job. So, uh, But security situation got worse till 2000, uh, late 2012, when um, the last time when I was traveling with my wife and with my daughter, when Taliban stopped my car and I was searched, I'm lucky I survived from that, uh, <coughs> that search. 
Uh, I again came to Pakistan. Uh, there was two huge uh, bomb blasts uh, in uh, within two months, where more than uh, 200 people were killed. Uh, then I decided to leave Pakistan as well because Afghanistan's situation was getting worse and Pakistan was no longer safe for us. Then we came to Indonesia, and the time when I arrived in Indonesia. We spent a lot of money to bring all my family with me because I couldn't leave them back in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Uh, their life were in danger. So I arrived in Indonesia in a time when I had only $200 in my pocket. But somehow I believe that we will survive this uh, this difficult time as well because at least we are safe we are in peace because indonesia is considerably more peaceful place than afghanistan and pakistan yeah it certainly is it certainly is and for those who don't know what um i mean obviously both of those countries are unstable and have security issues for a range of reasons and you know the taliban is one of them it's also because there's been a lot of war ongoing war and now um there's you know isis in iraq and syria so the the region more broadly is quite fraught but in terms of as a hazara and the persecution that you faced as a as an afghan hazara what what was behind that politically was it because the taliban singled you out for a particular reason for a lot of our for, for a lot of people if they know about the, uh, they have a little knowledge about afghanistan they uh, they consider afghanistan's history because of mujahideen russian invasion and the taliban and after uh, 9/11 and after 9/11 but our persecution hazara people's persecution started uh, 300 years ago when they were driven out of their um, fertile land uh, across uh, Helmand River which is now um, uh, uh, which produces now more than 80% of opium in the world uh, they belong to hazara people we were driven out of these beautiful lands and the valleys on the mountains now it's called central highlands of afghanistan where life is so difficult to live where temperatures goes temperature goes a minus 30 and in in uh, summer season it's very dry but but still hazaras um, they live there but Uh, when Taliban came, they were uh, persecuting because uh, ethnically we were different uh, from uh, from rest of the uh, people, and religiously we were different from rest of the people. So it was uh, because of these two reasons. Uh, so they uh, we we looked different. We uh, uh, we spoke our culture, our language, religion. Everything's different. So. The Taliban belong to the different sect uh, which we don't be- uh, belong, and they thought we are infidels. Uh, we had to pay the tax which infidels pay to the Muslim rulers, uh, and it was from the po- very past uh, perception. And uh, they also stipulated that if we do not embrace their brand of Islam, then uh, we would be persecuted. But they persecuted us before that uh, that period. and uh, that that was like a very uh, a harsh experience for hazar people uh, they were out crying at that time that they are persecuted but unfortunately no one was listening to them mm well it's really staggering to know that it's been 300 years and it's still continuing yeah for my instance i my daughter is the fifth generation to be refugee when mm. she came to indonesia and the first time uh, we've got uh, a place we can call it home we can live it for long we don't foresee any threat in our life 
Yes, and that's an amazing outcome and something we'll get to um, once we go through this story. So I'll bring in Jolien now to share how you both met as well as how you also met Khadim, who is the other part of the trio <laughs> that yes, you formed. Yes, yes, the third musketeer. <laughs> so Jolien, you were, you were in Indonesia and yeah. you what brought you to meet Muzaffa? Well, I was in Indonesia. I was living in Jakarta and my wife had a job there and um, she was set up and going to work. So... I had a little time and at, the, at that time Australia had just reintroduced offshore detention, mandatory offshore detention and I'd been reading about refugees, we've all been reading, as an Australian we've been reading about refugees for nearly 20 years and I thought to myself, you know what, I've never met a refugee in my entire life, I've never met a refugee so what do I know, who are these people and where do they come from and what are they going to do now? So... I looked online and I kind of worked out where the staging post for all the boats, those boats that were going to Christmas Island was. And it was about an hour's drive in this place called Chisarua. And um, so I got a car and an Indonesian driver and said, OK, please take me to Chisarua. And I, <laughs> I drove up the hill, up this long winding hill, very, you know, ordinary Indonesian road with shops on either side. And I took this random left-hand turn and I went down the hill and across the bridge and around the bend and past this fork. And then the driver, he pointed, look, there, there. He said, that's a refugee. <laughs> and um, so I got out of the car and I stuck out my hand. I, I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do next when I did meet a refugee. But <laughs> I stuck out my hand. I said, hi, I'm Jolien and I'm an Australian. And, and that was Hassan. And he said, oh, look, my English is not so good, but... My cousin, Rizwana, she has... Um, she, you should talk to her. So I went inside into the little house where it looked like the whole family was staying in this very little space and they made me cups of green tea and, and gave me lollies. And, um, you know, I asked all the dumb questions. You know, where do you come from? Why did you leave? Are you going to get a boat? How do you survive? All these kind of stupid questions and they explained that they were Hazara and no, they weren't going to get a boat, it was too dangerous and they'd smuggled themselves out and, you know, they were living there and waiting for this UNHCR process. And um, anyway, after I'd asked all my questions, Rizwana had a chance to ask me and she found out I was a filmmaker and she said, oh, you have to meet my brother, Muzaffa. And so, OK, I said, OK, well, next time I come up. So a couple of weeks later I drove up the hill and that's when I met Mazafa, and he had with him this young kid, Hadim. Hadim was this 17-year-old kid, and he'd been filming on his mobile telephone. And when I, when they, well, first Mazafa's photography was incredible photography from central Afghanistan. These beautiful landscapes, something like something out of Star Wars. This, this kind of mysterious place that I'd never seen, and the people. And they were beautiful, that was beautiful photography. But then I saw this video footage of Hadim's that he'd shot on his mobile phone. Now, I'm a documentary filmmaker and, and part of being a documentary filmmaker is you're always looking to represent the real, to reflect the honest truth of what's out there. And it, it, it gets very, very difficult to do, to, to present unmanipulated stories that are not like some kind of real, you know, so-called reality TV. So <clears throat> when I saw Hadim's footage... It was just incredible. It was just authentic, intimate life as a refugee in Indonesia. Because, and if I found this out later, he'd been filming uh, his flatmates and they were laughing at him. You know, they were all older and there was, who was this 17-year-old kid very seriously filming on his mobile phone, getting all the shots and coverage and stuff. They thought, they were like, what are you doing? You're so silly. 
Um, anyway, that day we all met. We liked each other immediately. We met through a creative connection, which I think is kind of really important in our friendship moving forward. There was no... Uh, you know, neither has had any more power than the other. We were kind of just there having it on a creative path. And we'd, that day we decided we'd start a project together, a, a film project, and that's what... That was nearly four years ago and has... Um, kind of been what we've working on ever since. Yeah, and the film project is called The Staging Post, which had its premiere on Sunday night in Melbourne. Yes. The full premiere. I know it's yeah. been screened in bits, um, you know, in the lead up to, yes. to get this momentum and to also have um, crowdfunding, which you've also yeah. done. Let's talk about the subject of the film because, mm. and it, it, there's many aspects to this subject, but it does centre around the refugees in Chisarua and the community there and the amazing agency that they had to set up a refugee learning centre yeah. from their own initiative with yeah. support from you because it was necessary mm-hmm. but really it's so amazing but not surprising uh, certainly it really just shows that if you as you say accompany people I know you said that the other night when and you give them the encouragement just whatever the small amount that's needed that you know refugees are immensely um, self-sufficient and uh, motivated and talented and highly skilled people that you've really you came together to build and grow this wonderful refugee mm. learning center mm. muzafa from the community what was the reason why or the driving force behind this refugee learning center because in indonesia although it is much safer than living in afghanistan or pakistan yeah. you're still very much constrained and as you say when you worked for the un you you recognise that education is a basic human right. So could you share with us, I guess, how you got to, as a community, think about this refugee learning centre and then create it? Um, first of all, let me, let me recognise refugees. Um, their life is uh, sometimes miserable, very hard, but it consists a lot of experience. They go through some uh, highs and lows. It gives them uh, huge lessons, immense lessons in their life. Uh, I grew, grew up in Pakistan uh, where um, uh, life was very difficult, but my life changed when I went to uh, went back to Afghanistan and I got a job in the UN where I feel myself really lucky to meet and work with some amazing people with the UN. Uh, one of them was uh, Kamala. Let, uh, she was a human rights officer, so I worked with her when she was um, uh, having workshops for the prisoners in the prison. And uh, she, I remember one day uh, she told the prisoners that you have committed the crimes and you are serving uh, your sentence for probably for life, for 10 years, but you are deprived of some of your rights, but not all of your rights. And education is one of them. This is your right. And in one week uh, um, uh, workshop, she started this school and she brought big changes for those uh, prisoners in uh, remote Daikundi province. And uh, later on, after a couple of years, that prison had high school graduates from those prisoners. And that was a model for me that these can be the possibilities in difficult situations. Uh, when we arrived in Indonesia. Uh, I was very curiously observing the situation, like refugees were living scattered, they were living in fear. Uh, 
Khadim and I, when we became immediately friends, when I uh, went to UNHCR office and he uh, recognized me, we became friends immediately. We were discussing these problems because he was living, um, he came uh, two or three months before me in Indonesia and he knew about this, uh, the problems. We thought why refugees are living in fear. They have uh, left Afghanistan or Pakistan, but they have to feel a bit more open because they are uh, in Indonesia, they should feel more secure than their home country. And they are now registered with the UNHCR. We realized um, there were some fears it doesn't belong to realities. Like they, they thought they cannot teach. They cannot um, get education. They do not have access. Their telephone calls are recorded. They are under surveillance by UNHCR or by immigration or by police. I thought refugees, they are not criminals. They should be more expressive than they are. And uh, that was the time when uh, Australian borders closed for refugees. The boats stopped. And I realized the refugees now, uh, they have to stay there for longer than previous times that then we became friends and um, Julian and Caroline uh, Julian's wife they were the first people um, giving uh, just like bringing these questions that what we would do if we are here for four years for while doing nothing and we we just wait and that was terrible time for us as well so that's how uh, then we just uh, we we found that um, in this situation, when situ uh, security situation was getting worse in Afghanistan and Pakistan, those people who worked in uh, prestigious organizations with international forces, they were interpreters, they were uh, development workers, they were humanitarian workers, human rights activists, they were fleeing the country. So we thought we can use this uh, opportunity. They can be teachers, at least. We asked from UNHCR to help us to set up an uh, association of refugees where we could teach our children. We offer some services like interpreting for the refugees when they go to doctors and if they have interviews. And uh, we could help them to identify really needy refugees. But they did not give us any, uh, any permission or they did not respond to our proposal. So nine months after that proposal, we decided to... Uh, take the matters in our own hand and we started that school but thanks to the support we received uh, that was uh, $600 uh, money for paying rent for three months for that small house and that was the beginning of our school we always we were thinking that we have the agency we have all necessary components of a school like we have teachers we have parents and they are really ready to play their role and we have volunteers to uh, run this school but how we can run this for many years to come and that was the biggest question. We were waiting to find the answers, then we can start that school. And we are really lucky having uh, some beautiful people, uh, particularly from Australia. They brought us books, they brought us supplies for that school, and we thought we are not alone. And it was like a journey, and we received tremendous accompanyship from, from Australians, most importantly. And we are on the fourth year that we are running that school. Now we have more than, like, uh, uh, around 200 students. 
and they are young, as young as four years old and as old as 58 years old. There are children, for the first time they go to school in Indonesia, they're learning in English, they're using Australian curriculum, and there are uh, women, they are attending school for the first time. And we feel really proud that uh, with the initiative we started, it's running for the fourth, uh, fourth year. and. Uh, it inspires other uh, refugees. It inspires UNHCR. Now they come to us and say, how did you manage to start this thing? So we are really uh, proud of uh, having that school. And we recognize the efforts that refugees put to establish that school, to run that school, and to maintain that school. And it's refugee days. Uh, I think uh, they deserve a lot of uh, credits on on this school they really do and the whole film really follows you three as well as those other amazing refugees including your wife Muzaffa who is so impressive and your beautiful daughter <laughs> such a personality <laughs> and also I mean you show the first school the first building that you have and you very quickly outgrow it and you need to upgrade because there's so much demand they outgrew it within a week <laughs> they rang us in a week and said we have 55 students, yeah. Yeah. And so now, you know, you've moved into this much larger place and, as you say, you've got about 200. Yeah. Does the demand continue? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was up there last time I was there in January and there were, I think, just that one week I was there, we had an extra 15 people coming in on the waiting list uh, just for that school. But... The, the whole thing behind it is that it's, it's actually it's not just a school, it's, it's, it's a number of ideas that have come together and it's an idea that's, that's spreading. So there's now actually seven, if not eight, schools in Indonesia following this model. And, and kind of, we, we each have our own ideas and they kind of met that day. Mazafas is, of course, education is a human right. We're not criminals here. Mine was meeting a refugee and then that continues to be my role that I'm a connector between Australians and refugees and you know I, I grew up in uh, Epping in Sydney which is you know think suburban middle 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 class so this film and this whole project you know I feel like if I can get my people if you like if I can get that middle middle class people that I grew up with to to just come face to face have a kind of you know a beer across the table not that they might drink beer but if I can get them face to face talking then we can you, you know we can change attitudes and then of course Hadim's with his mobile phone telling stories was he wanted to raise the voice of refugees and show a better face and show a show a positive face so these, these are just three... The school is one thing and it's busy and it's full, it's overfull and then there are now many, many more because it's, a, it's an idea. It's an idea that refugees have that capacity and it's also an idea that Australians, they can just go over and meet or they can Skype or they can follow on Facebook the journeys and, and, and get to know people. So it's very much at its core a community-led project and it's two communities, the refugee community and the Australian community bypassing all institutions, bypassing all those international organisations, those millions and billions of dollars, we're bypassing the whole thing and just going, hey, when an individual over here meets an individual over here, together we can, we can do something and that's what, what's happened and that's what we're really, really proud of, this, uh, this little school that really is just an idea that's now starting to have these quite dramatic, quite big outcomes mm. Mm. and as you say it's become a model for others have they also those other projects been led by refugees in indonesia as well 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they're all very much led by refugees and none of them are quite at the level of sophistication that we have now, but they're trying their best, they're bringing things together. They're also meeting connectors like people in Australia like myself and they're kind of making friends and making connections and working out their own little process. And so uh, I think there's there's no real silver bullet, there's no button that you can press. This is just a community process of people learning, people gradually getting to know each other, people saying, hey, I can help here, hey, I can help here. And the other thing I wanted to point out is that it, it's a two-way education process. There's, there's, the Australians don't just go over there and, and, and drop things. We have a situation now in Chisarua where people go over and intern with the school or they go, we have this uh, billeting system where Australians can go and live with the refugees and, 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 and have dinner with them and, and exist with them in that space and that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to have people communicating, sitting down and having dinner together and talking. It just mm. bypasses any uh, of that uh, kind of aggressive political chatter or, or, or aggressive political stance. It's mm. just uh, people, yeah. Because it's an exchange, an equal exchange, really. And one of the things that Hadim says in the movie, which is really surprising and he kind of finds it amusing, is mm. that uh, one of the younger women who comes across to volunteer at the school says, well, I want to stay here and, you know, stay with you, but um, I have to ask my mother first because <laughs> I'm told refugees are dangerous. Yeah. And she was scared. Yeah. And that really is such a poignant moment in yeah. the film that highlights just how far removed we are from truly understanding yeah. the true experience of refugees. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that, that the film, one of its gifts is to really open our eyes to the beauty of these mm. humans in Chisarua. He's, a, he's an incredible... He has a, for a 17-year-old kid, Hadim has this incredible wisdom and an incredible view, viewpoint on the world. But when I, when I realised that, uh, that, that things can be presented in different ways was actually when I've, Hadim was telling me his story about, you know, his school was bombed in one of those big bombs in Kuwaita and then he told me how he got through into Malaysia and t- spoke to the smugglers and then in the jungle and they stamped this fake passport and then he came here and then four times he tried to get a boat to Australia but every time something happened and one time he got arrested but then, like, later that night he jumped out over the fence and kind of ran away and... I was sitting with him and it was across my kitchen table and that's when I realised that as a that kind of middle-class suburban Australian, if, if he was sitting down the pub with one of those guys I went to school with, they'd be going, bloody good on you. You're, yeah. You're a trooper, you know? Yeah, rip him, mate. 17 like, years Yeah, you, you've travelled across the world, you've yeah. survived this, you've escaped, please. And, like, sitting face-to-face with him... That story was just a, a story of inspiration and, and something that I, it was bloody Australian. Mm. And, and, um, but I, I was also aware that that same story, you could say, well, he's an illegal immigrant, he's, you know, flouted the law internationally, he's, like, been dealing with smugglers, he's tried to get a boat, he's escaped convict. So you could write all these things. Oh, and possibly a terrorist. I, I, you know, I don't know. You could write all those things around that same story, but on a face-to-face level, on a, on a direct level, all that, all that falls away and you just see people as people and... I mean, I hope that the film the film is just a very honest story. It's just a very 
kind of raw story. It doesn't have any tricks or, or anything. It just tells a very straight chronological story of what happened. And uh, it, it, sometimes I think it's almost a, like a how-to. This is how you should just... Why don't, why don't you just do this? Go and meet somebody. From, from my side, that's all I did and uh, it's been an amazing journey for me. Mm. Yeah, it's so radical in its simplicity that it bypasses all that political bureaucracy and spin. Sometimes we see these uh, we see these uh, brochures for big ideas conferences and <laughs> innovation <laughs> things and, and we say, oh, we just have a little idea, we just have the tiniest idea and yeah. we have these three very, very simple, simple tiny ideas but wow, we're really amazed now three years down the track that these tiny little ideas and they're still the same ideas but now we're starting to have some success with the thing like the school and 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 these successes that we could never even imagine like Mazafa mentioned earlier before the UNHCR who told refugees when they arrived they couldn't be involved in organized activities they now have a new Facebook page and guess whose Facebook posts they're sharing on <laughs> all the schools and yeah. they're saying how wonderful all these wonderful things refugees are doing. So that's just, that's an incredible result. Mm. That's, a, that's a massive international organisation that's taken its lead from a little idea that Mazafa and the, the refugees had three years ago. So, yeah, small ideas. Exactly. I'm talking to Jolien Hoff and Muzaffar Ali of the documentary The Staging Post. Now, Muzaffar, I know that those who are listening will be really interested to know how you got to Australia in the end and what that um, was like because, and I don't want to give away the heartwarming moments of the film, but it is p- pretty special. Muzaffar, when did you find out and, and get here and what's happened for you since? The time when the second bomb blast occurred in Koita in Pakistan on Hazara people, where a lot of people uh, were killed in that, uh, I remember one afternoon I got together all my family. I said, uh, we cannot live here anymore. So we have to leave. But where we would go, we didn't know. Because if we go to Iran, it's safe, it's secure, but there is big chance of being deported back to Afghanistan. We cannot go to Turkey or Europe because the route is very dangerous. The only way was left for us, uh, the expensive way to come to Indonesia. The time when I sold everything of my family, the jewelry of my wife, the toys of my daughter, the books and the cups and the utensils and everything we had we could get some money to reach Indonesia. And as I said, I had only $200 in my pocket the night, uh, the evening I arrived uh, in Jakarta. I never thought I would end up in Australia. I never thought, uh, I, I didn't know what is the resettlement process, though I worked for the UN, but I realized that this uh, refugee crisis is much deeper than my knowledge of the UN uh, and UNHCR, what UNHCR was doing, the resettlement process, uh, how it works. Uh, most of the refugees, they didn't know because they were living in fear. They were not sharing their each other's experience. Mostly they didn't know these things. So I'm one of the very few lucky people from Indonesia to be accepted as a refugee and get resettlement in Australia uh, in a short period. In less, less than two years, I came to Australia. But I made everything clear for other refugees, like how uh, it, it is, uh, what is a refugee uh, status um, interview, 
how it goes, what are the requirements. Uh, because a lot of re- uh, refugees, they were um, doing mistakes. They didn't know what this re- interview means to them and what is the resettlement, uh, resettlement interview. So it was, it was um, for me, the, uh, a big experience, and I wanted to share this to other refugees for the first time. And when I was accepted, I felt I'm really lucky uh, when uh, I was going to Australia because I had my friends, Julian, and many other friends who came out to our school. And I was feeling le- that, yes, this could be my home. And I was very emotional the day when I left the school. This, uh, the teachers, the friends and the parents, they were crying because it was uh, a, an emotional uh, moment for them. One of them were leaving. And uh, I was also very emotional because I was leaving them behind where we did something really good, incredibly big thing we did together, and we had achieved big big goals together. When I came here in Australia, uh, it was also, again, emotional for me because I left um, some emotional people behind in Chisarwa, then I was welcomed with some emotional and true Australians here. <laughs> I must admit, uh, I was... I felt I was really welcomed, warmly welcomed. And this was the thing, uh, this was the first feeling it came in my whole life that uh, as a human being, uh, I am in a place where I will be uh, respected here. I can live here with dignity and I will have um, a, a fair go. That was the first time because when I was getting education in Pakistan, uh, I um, experienced discrimination by my teachers, by the students, by the people. When I was in Afghanistan, I was discriminated because of my uh, face, because of my ethnicity. I am Hazara. And there was all, there were also um, fear of uh, persecution, being killed by, by, by the commanders, by the Taliban. So when I stepped in here, with legal status, that was the first time I felt I am something. So that was an incredible feeling and um, uh, very emotional for me. And I want to uh, like um, tell everyone that, yeah, I'm very lucky to be here in Australia. We're very lucky to have you, I've Thank got you. to say. <laughs> I'm feeling very proud <laughs> and emotional myself. And you're doing amazing things, you and your wife, um, mm. and continuing your education, higher education as well, and contributing immensely in our society. I, I think that one of the things in the film is uh, that what it, it shows another possibility. It shows the alternative possibility is that, yeah, you know, like... In our story, Australians are heroes and refugees are capable and fabulous people and that's that's our story. And what happens when that you take that view is, yeah, you have schools and then when they arrive, you know, they're welcomed and they're, of course, you know, Mazafar and his family, yes, they're already in university. Nagina, Mazafar's wife's already getting distinction averages in uh, first class, in her first year at university, so... You know, there's no doubt that that that, that family's going to go on and and contribute greatly, and and of course, Mazafa's daughter, who's now five and has started school, um, in 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 Adelaide where they are now. Um, so yeah, I think that's 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 the story and that's the message of the film, it, the, and that's the power of community and a, and a little idea that that 
plays out in in so many uh, in so many ways. Um, mm. I think one thing for Mazafa when he arrived, and and this came through the school, is is that he had social capital, so he was able to meet you know reach Australians, whether it was myself and my wife, but there were many others, you know, who were all very willing to you know Mazafa come over and have dinner at our place. How can we help you? And Whenever our now after a few years, when students and teachers are getting resettled, occasionally we get a few to Australia, a few to Canada, a few to America. But when they go, the students are going directly into their age-appropriate years. So they're not doing ESL, they're not doing anything. They're going directly into fourth class, fifth class, sixth class, whatever, it, whatever it is. And the teachers, the older ones, they've seen Nagina in in in, in twelve, fifteen, eighteen months. She's got herself into first year university, and they're like, yes. I know what the possibilities are and uh, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to... I know that that's what I can do and I'm going to make it happen and I know to make it happen I've got to hit the ground running and, and I've got to go. So the, the school is kind of providing in all these ways that I, we could never have imagined in the in, in the beginning but these, these beautiful kind of results that are coming. They are and it also has a beautiful story about the women. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and they're really so empowered and playing soccer and... Oh, they led the way. Yeah. They absolutely led the way. And probably still do. <laughs> they're definitely... That's um, empowered... Letting women free for the first time in their life, this is one of the goals of this school, uh, where women, they come from Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iran, they live, mostly they lived as refugee, uh, they lived in fear. But when they come to school as teacher and volunteer, all of our teachers and the management team at school, they're volunteers, they're refugees. But what incentive they get from the school is to be free to go to play soccer to be involved in uh, in sports. Uh, so they love it because most of the uh, teachers, for the first time, they kicked a ball. That's in <laughs> Indonesia. That was really uh, the first time when they played soccer. Uh, it was a dramatic day when they went to watch uh, our students competing with Indonesian students. That day was uh, a... F- a a rainy day when they the, uh, the Indonesian children they didn't turn up, so our kids they were really missing. Uh, they because that once a week they go they go and compete with uh, with Indonesians and our mm, teachers mostly females. They they love to watch uh, watch them play soccer. So when they didn't turn up, uh, there were uh, a chance for them to come back home. Uh, they were already wet. And the other possibility was to play together. So they decided to play. But our kids, they were good football players, <laughs> much better players than the women. So they had an they started, advantage, didn't they? Yeah, they started playing, the women started playing football with their hands <laughs> and they were running all around in the rain. That was the start. And my wife says that was one of the happiest moments in my life. Uh, and uh, and they continued that that uh, that sport. They they found a new love. Uh, they could they could express, and that was more important because for them most of the time they are waiting for their resettlement. They are waiting for UNHCR call. They have uh, difficulties at home, but sports was the time when they go and forget all these things, mm. and they they loved it. They're, they're, uh, one of the main. Uh, goals of the school is to keep sports going for the kids and for these women teachers. Yeah, yeah. And 
let's just talk finally about what people can do because that's really critical and you've already really highlighted some of what people can do but Jolien mm-hmm. you know you mentioned at the end of the film there are things people can do what what exactly oh look absolutely um you know in in a, in a funny way uh I always think the parallels with the refugees and the UNHCR with this film is this film's a community film. There isn't uh, broadcasters or agencies or governments or anybody supporting it. You're not going to see it at 7 o'clock on the, or 8 o'clock on the television. But what you can do is we want to get this film out and we want everybody to watch it. So we're holding community screenings around the country. We want people to get in touch with us at thestagingpost.com.au, The Staging Post. Um, Please get in touch with us. We'd love to have community screenings at your schools. We've been talking with us, like, small sections at universities and those screenings have gone really, really well. Um, So schools, we spoke to some uh, Year 5 and Year 6 kids yesterday at a school here in Melbourne and they just love to hear the stories um, directly from someone like Mazafa and... They ask all the questions that they want to ask and, and Mazafa can stand up in front and, and answer them and then, you know, that process just just connects us on a, on, a, on a direct level. So, yeah, we'd love to get this film out as widely as mm. possible. We're definitely going to screen it again in Melbourne. We're looking for venues and places to do that at the moment. Um, the school itself, if, if you look up the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre, you can follow their Facebook page and that's enough just to follow their journey and acknowledge their existence is something that, that all the students and the teachers who get up and... Uh, and go to school and work every day. They loved the acknowledgement. Um, of course, there's possibilities if you want to kind of support the school, if you want to, to make donations, there's, possi- there's possibilities there. But we just want to connect people and we want to kind of tell this story that, you know, from my side and from Mazafa's side, that we can connect and we can give to each other and we can be a part of each other's journey and the, the, the imaginary line between us is doesn't need to exist. We can step over it. No, and you did mention that Melbourne people have been particularly oh, Melbourne. enthusiastic. Oh, Melbourne is our... I, you know, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't say, you know... I'm such a Sydney boy. I can't tell you, like, the mythology that my wife has to put up with. My, <laughs> my great-grandmother's buried on the cliffs at Clovelly and my great-great-grandfather was Captain Billy Ringland who rode trading ships up and down the coast of New South Wales. And, um, but Melbourne has absolutely tripled Sydney and outdone itself in its support of this project from day one, from the screening on Sunday night that was absolutely packed to the rafters mm. with 250 people. But to the first person who took books to the school, to the donators, to the people. There's there's people in Melbourne, the final scene of the film, you, it could not be filmed, but I was in desperate... I had no money left and I made one phone call to a Melbourne person and they said yes and they made a donation of $5,000 so that I could go and film the final scene in Indonesia. So, Melbourne, this I'm so proud of you. I think um, I'm going to have to move here. Yeah. <laughs> we'll welcome anyone, especially at arty types and those who really care about human rights like you both do. And um, and I also want to encourage people to look at Muzaffa's photography because it is amazing, yes. truly beautiful. Yes. Thank you both Thank for you. joining me. 
Thanks, Amy. Oh, thanks, thanks Amy. Thanks so much. It's an absolute pleasure. That was Muzaffa Ali and also Jolien Hoff. And uh, they're two parts of a trio behind the Staging Post documentary, which uh, premiered on Sunday night in Melbourne. And they're looking to screen more in Melbourne. And once we know when those are, are coming up, I will be posting them very widely so that you can all follow up and see it for yourself. It is absolutely well worth uh, watching and doing what you can to bridge that gap because there's no need for it to be there at all.